You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Welcome to CRST, the podcast. This is the podcast where we delve into the latest advancements in ophthalmology, and uh, it really parallels the pages of Cataract and Refractive Surgery today, one of my favorite trade journals. I'm John Hovanesian. I'm guest medical editor for the October 2023 issue of CRST. And in that issue, we focused on a real life shift that we're seeing happening toward refractive lensectomy. Uh, I wrote an article in that issue called, I have seen the future of vision correction and its name is refractive lensectomy. And I really believe that's true because it is the trend that's happening in our practice. So to explore that a little further, we've got a couple of great leaders in this field, uh, Biran Megpara and George Waring, two surgeons and contributors to the October cover focus uh, who offered their own perspectives in the, uh, the articles that were related to differentiating between cataract surgery and refractive lensectomy. Well, we're so delighted to be with you all today. Biran, help us understand the real difference between dysfunctional lens syndrome and cataract. It's the same part of the body. It's a spectrum of uh, dysfunction that is happening. Uh, but how do you really make the distinction between these two? And, and, and you know, how do you think about this clinically? I think this is a really important topic. And yeah, just to, to kind of get some of the wording out of the way, this term dysfunctional lens syndrome, um, it's been becoming more and more popular lately. And really what it is, is it's just a way to describe the spectrum of changes that happen to a lens as one gets older. So you can think about the first changes happening in, let's say your early 40s, you know, presbyopia, difficulty focusing in up close. But it's a continuum, right? So as that patient gets older, let's say late 40s, early 50s, that lens not only does it become more and more presbyopic, but it also starts to lose clarity. And, and patients start to experience some early symptoms of this dysfunctional lens. So for example, patients may feel like, ah, you know, the glare at nighttime when I'm driving is getting a little bit worse, or, you know, I got to pull out my cell phone to look at a menu when I'm in a restaurant. But they're not super bothered by it, right? It's just kind of a, an annoying thing to them. They don't really think too much of it unless maybe we probe them. But then that opacification continues and continues. And then they reach the threshold of a cataract. And, and then we all know what a cataract is. I mean, there's objective measures, but more importantly, there's subjective measures where these changes in their vision are now starting to impact their day-to-day life. And that's when I call something a cataract. Now, the other thing that also happens that I think really annoys patients when they're in that dysfunctional lens syndrome period is they have these constant refractive shifts, right? You know, they, they come in complaining that, you know, I got a new pair of glasses last year and they don't work. And my doctor says any new pair of glasses this year. And that happens year after year. And that's just a sign that that lens is changing. And I kind of lump that under dysfunctional lens syndrome as well. There can be some confusion around the concept and, um, and I really like the way that you frame that for us. Um, the, I think one of the big things is how you helped us understand the, that this occurs through a spectrum of aging changes. Um, you know, and a, a number of years ago, we, we proposed a grading system for dysfunctional lens after uh, we introduced the concept of the syndrome. And the syndrome is exactly what you described. Uh, it's, it wasn't just the optical dysfunction, that part of 
aging lens was really originally described by Jorge Alio in 2005 of optical lens dysfunction. And, and then um, uh, with Dan Dury and, and myself and others, we went on to create a, a, a propose a syndrome around it, which encompassed presbyopia, hired aberrations, and other um, aspects of the aging lens. And then that set the stage for proposing a, the, the staging system of the first stage of presbyopia, the second stage of increasing in early opacities, exactly like you described. And then the third stage where these opacities have become so manifest that they're adversely affecting one's life where they're, um, they can't really function in their daily activities. And of course, meeting objective criteria and subjective criteria as well. And then it allows us to kind of build a framework that's just a little easier to work through for how we uh, not only approach these patients um, in our own clinics, but also educate them on the differences um, and you know why they're sent to, I mean, how many patients do you have a, uh, a day that they're told, well, I was told I have a baby cataract or an early cataract and I really shouldn't do anything about it yet. Um, but gosh, I'd just love to get out of these bifocals. But, but you know, I was told I can't do anything about this and probably be another 10 years before my cataract will be ripe enough. Well, we're just really not thinking that that way anymore. Um, I mean, the, is that kind of what you're finding? Um, and, and, and is that how you're, um, are you starting to use some of these concepts more and more in, in your clinic? Would you, would you agree? Definitely. Yeah. And, and that term, you know, ripe enough, I, I just dislike that term, right? Because patients then feel like, look, they, they are stuck in this holding pattern until they magically reach this threshold where then they can do something about it. Um, versus kind of explaining to them, yes, this is happening to your lens. And, and, you know, we have different options for you, whether it's cataract surgery or lensectomy, um, we can do things to, to make your quality of life better. And, and, you know, this definition, this mindset, it, it kind of helps with patient counseling, right. And setting expectations. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of a nice thing that, that we can talk about next is, you know, how do we talk to patients? So, for me, you know, when a patient has a cataract, the goal of cataract surgery is to remove that opacified lens and replace it with something that's optically clear. Now, of course, we have refractive cataract surgery, and, and one can argue all cataract surgery is refractive, refractive cataract surgery. But, you know, the core definition of that is, is to improve media clarity versus if we are going to intervene early, it becomes truly a refractive procedure, right? So if we're intervening when it's a dysfunctional lens, well, then patients have, have a different expectation and, and we have to deliver on that expectation. So these are conversations where I spend a lot of time on, on you know, goals and, and desires and their day-to-day -day activities and, and what they would like to gain as a result of this surgery. Um, so it, it is something that, that is important when it comes to our day-to-day. -day. And, and these conversations are different for every single patient. They are. And the, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, Baron, the, you know, it's so funny when I reflect on our journey in this, you know, years and years ago, when we um, kind of introduced these concepts and, and made these recommendations to our patients, it was not uncommon for the, um, to have a, a shocked look and, and have them run for the door because 
they were thinking to them, what you're going to do what to my lens? I've got what going on and, and head for the Hills when, and, and, and it's funny, they didn't come for cataracts. They came for LASIK. Um, and, and then, but we had identified it really at the time it was really stage two lens dysfunction was better dealt with at the source. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So we make the recommendation. Um, but now with the increasing popularity, this is, and, and I imagine you, you would agree, this is certainly one of the fastest growing segments of our practice is presbyopia, surgical correction of presbyopia. And generally speaking, it's, you know, it's if indicated, um, it's best to go to the source of the problem. So we use advanced diagnostics, take our clients on a digital tour of their eye, show them their, their lens dysfunction, help them understand um, in layman's terms, client-centric terminology, what that means, and why you know, this may be a better alternative than LASIK. You know, we, we help them understand that LASIK really was designed for pro visual problems that you were born with, you know, congenital amotropia not so much aging problems. And uh, really it's also designed for your distance vision primarily. And um, although we um, do offer LASIK in certain circumstances for presbyopia correction, mostly we recommend uh, lens replacement or the clear procedure custom lens replacement because you get not only do we help you with your distance vision, but you're also will restore your reading vision, which is why you came. And LASIK really wasn't designed for that initially. And then furthermore, we can maintain, um, keep both eyes working together and maintain their, um, their depth perception, which will give up uh, potentially if we um, do monovision LASIK. And, and then lastly, this is anti-aging when we go to the source because this can't age into the third stage of cataracts, so it prevents cataracts. Yeah, I think patients like like that part. You know, that they like to hear that they're you know preventing something in the future or or at least taking care of it early, so they don't have to worry about it down the road. Um, I also like that uh, you brought up you know diagnostics. Do you find it helpful, both I guess from a diagnostic standpoint and from a counseling standpoint, to have something like, you know, an eye trace or, or some sort of other device that, that measures internal aberrations or this dysfunctional lens index? We, we do, and, and, um, and we, we actually help validate the dysfunctional lens index in our center um, initially, and, and uh, we found it to be a very valuable tool. And what we've also found to be valuable, Baron, is the um, is shine fluke imaging, where um, not, because before I walk in the room, not only do I have a score with uh, the dysfunctional lens index um, and um, their internal aberration profile as well, but I'm also uh, can look subjectively at the shine flug and get a sense of what type of media opacity, just like you described so beautifully at the onset of our conversation, to make some determination. Um, and these are multifactorial decisions, you know, based on refractive error, um, vitreous status, age. Uh, and other aspects and risk factors um, that are applicable. Um, so we're, we're kind of looking at all these things, but the diagnostics help us a lot um, in, that, in that journey before we even walk in the room, but then we get to show them, take them on a digital tour of their eye and kind of show them what stage they're at and what may, may make the most sense. And I think that, that, really, that really helps a lot. Yeah, George, that's that's really, uh, really relevant what you're saying about diagnostics and their role. Uh, and it's interesting as we 
examine patients, listen to their complaints, uh, and look at the diagnostics, we often see a nice correlation between, uh, if you want to call it dysfunctional lens index or uh, ocular scatter. I, I happen to use a uh, HD analyzer instrument, which, uh, which gives us uh, what's called an ocular scatter index. It's also useful. And occasionally I'll find that what I don't think is a very significant cataract is causing a lot of objective uh, scatter inside the eye. And that will cause us to think, well, you know, wait a second, maybe this is more um, visually disabling. And upon further exam, occasionally we, we uh, take the, the discussion in the direction of cataract rather than dysfunctional lens or, or refractive lensectomy, which kind of ties into what I want to talk about next with both of you. And that is um, really the financial and ethical aspects of how we make these decisions. We, uh, we don't have uh, insurance coverage when it is a cataract. So how do you uh, thread that needle between those two? How do you uh, uh, help educate patients and, and you know, practice ethically as we do this? Right. I mean, you know, when it comes to insurance, there are, you know, certainly objective measures, right? So best corrected visual acuity. If they're complaining of glare symptoms, then, you know, does that visual acuity decrease with bat testing? But yeah, there are some situations where it isn't as clear cut and there, you know, there is a little bit of an art to it um, because it, it really does, at least for me, what, what the patient is telling me, meaning, you know, what is their primary complaint? Is it, you know, their quality of vision and, and not being able to do something, or is it more of a frustration with their refractive error and, and wanting to be more independent. And, and we kind of have to figure out which one of those has more weight to it. Um, and if it is more of a refractive procedure or primarily a refractive procedure, well, then in that situation, I, I don't call that cataract surgery. And I don't try to qualify that as cataract surgery um, because it's really not. This is, you know, a refractive lensectomy. Um, and the reason that's important is is multiple, if you ask me. One, it's it's obviously the financial impact, right? If there's going to be a much higher bar as far as what the expectation is for this patient, um, then you know there should be some financial consideration there. But also, and and I don't know, this this may happen to you as well. You know, the if the outcome isn't exactly what the patient was hoping for, but anatomically everything was the way we wanted it to go. We can't really call it, or it's not great to call it a cataract. And what I mean by this is, you know, someone will come in for an additional opinion to see me and they had cataract surgery, beautiful cataract surgery. And for one reason or another, they weren't that happy with their refractive outcome. And then they'll say, well, my cataract wasn't even that bad to begin with, my doctor told me, or, you know, I saw better before than I do now. And then I look at their other eye and yeah, the cataract really wasn't that bad, but this was all called cataract surgery and billed as cataract surgery. And it just creates a little bit of a difficult situation. Whereas if you're just kind of more upfront about it and call this more of a refractive procedure when it really is a refractive procedure, um, I think you can get on the same page a little bit easier with your patient. Yeah, I, I think you really nailed it um, with, uh, and, I, and I particularly appreciate and, and agree with the subjective complaint, you know, we um, give a lecture at ASCRS about what is a Medicare qualified cataract. And, um, and it's amazing when you kind of 
look into it, the subjective components of it and how important the subjectivity of it is from the patient complaints. And that's important that that's documented. Um, but I, I, again, I think where the rubber hits the road, and you said this so well, it's what is driving the patient's complaint. And that's where sometimes if it's not clear cut and there's, and they're sort of, you know, kind of that uh, later stage two, but perhaps aren't, haven't fully gotten into the third stage. And the way that you work, we work through that is by just saying, well, um, I understand you're here to see us, Mr. Smith, for, for a lens procedure. What, what are you here for exactly? And what's bothering you? Well, you know, I just, and the first thing we grab the bifocals, I just can't stand these things anymore. I just don't want to wait for cataracts. And I, and, and well, um, do you, how do, how do you drive with your glasses on at night? Well, I do just fine, but I just don't want to wear them. Well, is there anything else that, um, do your glasses work? No, they work perfectly, but I just don't want to wear them. Um, well, do you, um, I, you know, you have 20, 20 vision with your glasses on. And, uh, and so, you know, it's that kind of thing that leads you and then you make the, dis the distinction. Now, if somebody's really close without a subjective complaint, you, we might just say, Hey, look, you may be on the fence here and you may be able to qualify for, for cataract, um, reimbursement. If we wait this out 12 months or 18 months or two years, you know, um, we can also do that, you know, so sometimes it's appropriate, uh, you know, if somebody is close also to just let them know where they are at in their, in their journey. George, that was so well said. I think the, uh, you know, the important thing here is honesty in conversing with your patient, uh, honesty on their part in sharing with you what really is concerning them and, uh, honestly reporting to everybody, whether it's the insurance carrier or, uh, you know, the patient we're communicating with whoever's paying for it. Uh, what we're attempting to accomplish. And what we're attempting to accomplish uh, is getting better and better these days over the years that uh, even you young guys have been uh, practicing. We've seen some wonderful advancements. And uh, Biren, talk to us a little bit about that, about uh, how these uh, lens-based procedures really are competing uh, with the types of results we've seen with LASIK and, and how you view that. Yeah, you know, I... I... Couldn't agree more. We're blessed, I think, to be operating in this era with so many technological advances that make lens-based surgery um, better and better. Now, it's not perfect, and I think we can all acknowledge that it's not perfect, but from the different lenses that we have to the FACO machines to the diagnostic equipment to try to get the best refractive outcome, um, it it's driving... I think myself, it's driving patients, our colleagues to look at lens-based surgery more and more favorably earlier um, and, and kind of have confidence to deliver the result that, that we want and that our patients want. And I think that that's a big part of it, right? If you're going to be a lens-based refractive surgeon, it's important to have the confidence in what you're doing in your diagnostic equipment in the lenses um, and, and portray that confidence to your patients. Otherwise it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough proposition sometimes. You know, and that's where this gets so fun because we are so blessed to have access to such incredible technology and more than ever, I mean, the, the, the lens 
implants for, to diagnostics, just like you said, to automated devices, uh, whether that's femtosecond laser or zepto. I mean, you know, often patients are coming in for laser vision correction and we in, in our program, our custom lens replacement is done with laser. So it's still laser vision correction. It's just that we're working on a different lens. Um, and so it's, it's increasingly intuitive uh, to the clients. And, and again, we're kind of, and, I, and like you said, everything has its trade-offs, but, um, but our, our patient satisfaction and quality of life improvements are so massive that we're having to turn away, um, you know, plano presbyopes with 2015 vision that are J1 minus that are just convinced that this is what's right for them and what they need and what they want. And, and you know, m multiple times a week, we're, ha we're, we're having to send them off to go suffer for a few years. Um, you know, so we're just, we're not really at that level. That's, that's kind of what I call stage one half. <laughs> you know, um, where I'm at, um, you know, rapidly approaching, you know, in that first stage, is that kind of been your experience in terms of quality of life and inpatient satisfaction, quality of life improvement? Yeah. And a lot of these patients, I, I do think they are some of the happiest patients in my practice. And, and I have, you know, a pretty wide range of patients that I see from the refractive side to, you know, the really, really bad cornea stuff. Um, and I love for the most part, seeing these post-op lensectomy patients um, because they're happy. Um, and, and a lot of the frustrations that were previously in their life for the most part is gone. Now, again, these lenses were not a hundred percent of the way there yet. And I don't know how you counsel your patients, but I, I'm a, maybe a little bit more conservative. So I'll, I'll tell them maybe, you know, 90% of patients after this are very happy with whatever lens we chose, you know, maybe 9% are bothered by some of the shortcomings of the lens, but they're happy with what they gain that they feel like overall, this was a good decision that they made. And then maybe 1%, less than 1% aren't happy. And, and no matter what we do, we couldn't get them happy. Um, and, and that's kind of how I, how I, how I've experienced things and how I talk to patients about it. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I would say patient satisfaction is very high. Yeah. I'm glad you touched on that. Um, I think as you've alluded to, Baron, the all all things refractive are really hinged not only on the technology and of course the outcome, but but the setting expectations are so critical in, in everything that we do, but but this is just a real important example of of expectation setting. And you know, some some of the things that, that we'll explain and re-explain and even before I operate on them, we'll re-explain, listen, you know, you've had your eyes for 50 years. Uh, you know, they, they don't, they don't work anymore, but you're used to them. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're starting, they're losing their function, um, for whatever that is. And but when I'm done with you, they're going to work beautifully, but you're not going to be used to them. And that takes time, faith and patience. And, um, and you're going to see the lenses working. You're going to see the things around lights. You're going to see the lenses giving you back your, your vision. These lenses are not designed to magnify. They're designed to restore your range naturally. Uh, like, but it's not going to magnify. So there will still be an occasional need for some magnification for, 
things that are not fit for human vision without glasses, uh, the microscopic stuff in low light. Um, and, and you'll do great, you know? So, so, you know, we, we just try to, to help set the stage for the journey. Um, and, uh, and then, um, that really does help people understand and kind of prep them for the processes as they kind of, um, as they, as they go through it. And, and, uh, and it's been, you know, that's kind of evolves every few years, you know, the sort of refractive speak and, and, um, and, and refractive lensectomy. What are you kind of looking at in the, what's exciting you for the future? And, and maybe, I mean, we can talk about uh, technology that's exciting you, but I think more in terms, let's start more broadly, bearing on trends. I mean, do you think this is going to kind of gradually um, gain some more momentum like we've seen over the last 10 years and 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 we'll 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 be doing this more and more earlier, younger, more often. I mean, what what are your predictions here? I do. I you know I think that this early presbyo slash late presbyo market is getting bigger and bigger. And until there is a really great medical option out there to help these patients, I think most of them are going to be looking for a surgical solution. Um, you know, this is starting to become my demographic, you know, I'm starting to fall into this and, you know, people my age, they, I feel like we just want a solution. We want to deal with it and we want to move on. Um, and, and I think you know, I'm seeing more and more of these patients. And I do think that trend is going to continue to grow, especially as more and more people get it done and then talk to their friends about what they've had done. Um, and as more and more surgeons are getting comfortable with this, um, I think it's a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, for lack of a better term. You know, I, I, I think that's a real insightful way to describe it. And I couldn't agree anymore. And, you know, if, if just to kind of push the conversation a little bit, um, we're, we're really looking at this earlier and earlier in life where when we we kind of first introduced sort of the these concepts around the treatment algorithms around presbyopia based on lens dysfunction staging, stage two really was lens replacement, and stage one perhaps was what, whatever we were doing at the time with corneal inlays or, or blended vision LASIK. But I'll tell you, we have really over the last five years really seen a movement earlier to lens replacement really in the first stages. Um, and it's sort of for obvious reasons, if you think about it. I mean, it's one procedure instead of two. Um, you're going to the source of the problem. Again, you're maintaining stereopsis. You're um, uh, uh, perhaps um, uh, um, able to utilize certain lens technology you wouldn't be able to in a post-refractive patient. You could avoid regression, um, visual quality, things like that. So we, we have really seen a trend towards this, but, but we're seeing this even more and more in hyperopia and certain forms of hyperopia where now that's becoming our treatment of choice. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, um, I, I just gave a, a lecture at AS, uh, uh, at, or at Academy on the, you know, the, the concept is latent hyperopia, not a sub 
category of lens dysfunction. I mean, I kind of see that as premature aging, you know, or asthenopic. They're using all their reserve for accommodation to see difference. There's nothing left for reading. And um, so you kind of got a double whammy in it. They fall off the cliff way earlier, you know, 15 years earlier than their colleagues. And so that's, if you're going to fix that, yeah, you can put a Band-Aid on it with LASIK. You're going to outgrow it in a few years when you, um, uh, or you go to the source of the problem. So that's, you know, these are, I'm sort of stretching the, our thinking here a little bit in the conversation, but that's really how we're sort of approaching this in our, in our practice. Well, this has really been a valuable discussion, Bjorn and George. Thank you for your uh, really valuable insights and real-world experience. Uh, if you, uh, you know, if you want to know more about refractive lensectomy, uh, I, I couldn't imagine better sources than Bjorn McPara and George Waring for uh, for this. So, I really appreciate your being part of this. Uh, we we highlighted the importance of this uh, procedure, refractive lensectomy, in and really its place in the future of vision correction and. Um, and I think probably the most important part of this discussion, at least for me today, was that around the informed patient consent, the ethics, how that ties into the financial and technological aspects of performing this, you know, this procedure, which is really evolving every year. So uh, if you'd like to learn more on the shift uh, toward refractive lensectomy, check out that October issue of CRST, which is available at www.crstoday.com. We hope you'll join us there. And... Uh, and meanwhile, thank you for joining us on this CRST, the podcast. I'm John Hovanesian. Thanks for listening. For more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net.